Welcome back to Behind the Screens. I'm Simon Burton from Numero. And I'm Matthew Liebman from Vista Group. Um, Simon, I'm looking on our, our little Squadcast podcast app and I can see a third person here, which is unusual. Who is the third person? Reveal yourself. And I'm Ryan Preventure from Movio. Yeah, so I think it's worth explaining to all our listeners. Ryan is going to join us each week now uh, to go through the audience numbers because the audience numbers come from Movio and we felt it was important to have a Movio expert run through those. Simon will continue to do the box office. I'll talk to our, our interview guests, sometimes bring the other people in and uh, colour commentate a little bit around the numbers as well as the guys take the lead. So why don't we start on the numbers? Um, how did the global box office perform this weekend, Simon? Bullet Train, uh, released in 57 overseas markets, taking a total of $32.4 million internationally. Couple that with a tick over $30 million at the domestic box office for a global debut of $62.5 million uh, for Sony's bullet train. So a good opening there. Some of the other top international results, Minions Rise of Gru took another $16 million. Thor Love and Thunder took another $11 million and Top Gun Maverick another $10 million. Another highlight was Jurassic World Dominion has now become the number two worldwide grocer of 2022 at $960 million worldwide, $588 million of that taken at the international box office uh, and 372 at the domestic box office. So that's now ranked second behind Top Gun Maverick, which has now surpassed $1.35 billion globally without a release in China. So a huge result there so far for, for Top Gun Maverick. Yes, some interesting numbers overall. You've got the Maverick ones there. You've got Thor as the top grocer of the franchise. Um, you know, I'm sure there's something to do with clear space in the release schedule, but it also shows audiences are there um, as well. They're willing to show up in the cinemas. Why don't we pivot a little bit now to the domestic market? Simon, did you want to talk bullet train there and then we get Ryan to break down the audience? Sure. As we touched on, Bullet Train, it took over $30 million this past weekend at the domestic box office. Looked like it was going to go higher than that uh, after the Thursday night previews. I think $4.6 million on the Thursday night. Um, there was speculation there that the weekend gross would start with a four somewhere in the, in the low 40s. Uh, but that trailed off over the weekend to, to give a result of $30.1 million from uh, nearly 4,400 theatres. And what was the audience like, Ryan? Well, you know, the audience really enjoyed the film, too, which I think is sort of important. If you look at the audience score compared to the Rotten Tomatoes critic scores, audiences just loved it. And and the numbers went up from Friday to Saturday if you take out you take out those Thursday previews. So the word of mouth was pretty great on the film, too. So that really helps. If you looked at sort of what we'd consider comparable films, we had the 355, Death on the Nile, No Time to Die, Uncharted, and Moonfall. And when you look at some of the differences between those audiences, there were really more frequent moviegoers coming out to see Bullet Train at 45% compared to the 31% for those comparable films. That's, that's a good sign. That's a sign that people saw Bullet Train were already had been seeing films before. So that's good. And it was a little bit of an older audience. Again, this is a good sign because we want we want those 55 to 64, 65 plus audiences to continue to go out and see movies. They were a little more reluctant during the pandemic. Now, hopefully we'll see more of them out there. It was 18% compared to 13% with the comps. So 18% for Bullet Train. 
And the 65 plus audience was 18% again, compared to 13% for the comparable films. Again, this is, this is, it's enough of a difference to really show that an older audience was interested in seeing this film. They, it might be Brad Pitt fans. It might be the action of it. It really brought it in. I, you know, the fact that staying alive was in the movie, uh, got me to want to see it. So, and it's, as you would expect, the age brackets tended to skew more male for a film like this. And that's for those two age brackets that we just talked about, not something terribly unusual for a film like Bullet Train. It's a great ride. And hopefully because we have a, a little bit of a lull here, it's going to hang in there for the next couple of weeks. Yeah. And I guess um, aside from the appeal to an older audience, maybe based on, on Brad Pitt's age and so on, it was also classified so that younger audiences who might have wanted to see it were actually restricted. So some of that bad bunny crowd couldn't come in and see it. And I guess the other thing this Sunday, got up, put on my slippers, put on my robe, went down to the bottom of the garden looking for some Easter eggs. Um, there weren't any there. Might be because of my last name. Might be because it wasn't really Easter Sunday. Uh, but how did the box office for Easter Sunday before? Uh, Easter Sunday released in the domestic market this past weekend $5.25 million on nearly 3,200 screens coming in eighth position. Um, you know, good on Joe Coy. He had a crack. Uh, I hate to wonder what that what it number would have been if he didn't come to CinemaCon and present it. But, yeah, and perhaps next time try and get it out on Easter weekend instead of four or five months later. Um, but the audience that did turn up, Ryan, what, what, was, what were they made up of? Well, if you're going to look at a comparison, we looked at the upside, second act, crazy rich Asians, and in, isn't it romantic? And some of the interesting things here was the frequency of the moviegoers were virtually the same. There wasn't really any difference there. And that, that says something about how these films actually compared pretty well. And like Bullet Train, the 45 to 65% demo, uh, 45 to 65 age bracket, was higher for Easter Sunday at 20% compared to 13%. So a little bit of an older audience compared to the demos went and saw Easter Sunday. And again, this, the 55 to 64 demographic was 20, 21% for Easter Sunday, again, compared to that 13%. A little bit of an older de demographic was just going to see movies in theaters this weekend, which, as I stated earlier, is a really good sign. Not a terrible surprise that females skewed a little higher for Easter Sunday, 55% compared to the 46% for comps. And again, another, another no-brainer here was, as expected, the Asian and Hispanic audiences came out to see this film, much more so compared to the comparable ones. 18% for Asian audiences for Easter Sunday compared to 6% for the comps. And Hispanics represented 32% of the Easter Sunday audience compared to 18% for the comps. You know, it is nice when you have a film that that skews to a little bit of a different demographic. People feel like they're they're being spoken to and those people do come out and see those films. That's a although the film didn't perform as well as you want, it still hit an audience that maybe hasn't gone out as much to to certain films. So that's a really 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 good good sign there. And with an empty release schedule, there might be a chance of a resurrection. We'll find out. But they're the two theatrical releases. Uh, in a lot of ways, though, the most uh, well-reviewed feature film of the week didn't show up in cinemas, and that is Prey that from the Predator franchise, which dropped exclusively on Hulu. Uh, you know, when you look at its Rotten Tomatoes review from reviewers, it was 92%. The audience was 81%. That exceeds both Bullet Train and Easter Sunday. And it feels to me that there was a real missed opportunity, maybe not this weekend, but somewhere between now and mid-October when the next round of big releases come, for this to have a theatrical release. 
Uh, I don't know what, what you guys are thinking in terms of missed opportunities for, for prey. It is a missed opportunity. It, it, you know, everyone that I saw on social media at, that did watch it absolutely loved it. it. It's a, you know, you could have released it between all these other films, given, given the box office a little bit of a hit uh, when, when needed the most. It makes no sense. I don't know. I, I really don't understand it at all. Yeah, without a doubt. And even if you didn't want to go this weekend, you could have gone in two weeks' time and let some of the, the, the steam come out of Bullet Train. I mean, when you look at the the other two instalments, they both grossed around 50 mil domestically. Um, the last one especially was not particularly liked by the critics or the audiences, both at around a 33% score. And they were up against potentially stronger content or at least fresher content. So, um, you know, the absence of a film that went on to gross 50 mil domestically, 160 mil worldwide, is something that will be felt by exhibitors and it doesn't seem like there's a logical reason for it. So why don't we turn our attention now to the, the interview of the week. I was fortunate enough to talk to Cameron Mitchell, who's coming in as the executive director of the National Association of Cinema Owners in Australia and New Zealand. It's equivalent of, of Unique or NATO up in North America. And we talked about his first days on the job there, but also his decade and a half experience as one of the pioneering exhibitors in the Middle East. Cameron Mitchell's played a critical role in the development of cinema going in the Middle East over a span of almost 15 years. He became CEO of Vox Cinemas based in Dubai in 2007, and during his tenure, Vox expanded from 40 screens in one country to 650 screens across eight. And this included securing the first Saudi cinema license back in 2018, following the removal of a 35-year government ban on showing movies. Cameron also oversaw expansion into production and distribution over that time. In 2017, he was promoted from cinemas into the role of CEO of Majid Al Fatame Leisure and Entertainment, which, in addition to Vox, oversaw water and ski parks, family entertainment centres and bowling lanes across the Middle East. By the time Cam finished up, Vox was awarded a Global Achievement in Cinema Exhibition by CinemaCon, and Cam himself was voted a 2019 Variety 500 honoree, an index of the 500 most influential business leaders shaping the global media industry. Last month, Cameron was appointed Executive Director of the National Association of Cinema Operators, or NACO, which is the peak body representing exhibitors across Australia. And so today, I look forward to talking to Cam about Australia, the Middle East, and everything in between. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Cam. Thanks so much. Hey, look, let's start with your new role as the Executive Director of NACO. Can you give listeners an idea of the scale and the membership base and the scope of NACO's operations? Sure. So NACO is obviously the peak body, representative body for Australia and New Zealand for, for cinemas. So that's about 2,400 screens, about 650 locations. And my role within NACO is obviously to do anything I can to support the members, which is primarily the, the major cinema exhibitors across those countries, and obviously support the industry. So that extends into government lobbying, what we can do to you know, combat you know, piracy, which is obviously still a significant risk um, for all markets. Um, what we can do to sort of support Australian and, and local productions, things like that. So it's anything I can do really to support the industry and, and to ensure that, you know, particularly at a time like now when we're abounding from COVID, um, you know, conservatively, I think the industry's lost in Australia and New Zealand about $2 billion of box office between 20 and, and 22. So whatever we can do to help sort of ensure that the industry bound, rebounds as, as quickly as possible. Yeah, so you gave a, a really long list of, of responsibilities there, and you've been in the role for less than a month. So how are you prioritising them? What are the first cabs off the rank? Sure. So what I'm doing, I've got my first board meeting next week, and 
I'm sitting down with the, the board members, which is, you know, the, the CEOs of the major cinema, cinema chains around Australia and New Zealand, chaired by David Sargent, who used to run Amalgamated Holdings or Event Entertainment. So we're sitting down and I'm, I'm going through basically, first of all, a recap of what I think I know about the industry. Now, I've obviously been in the Middle East for the last 15 years. I previously worked in Australia. But I'm, I'm doing sort of a, a bit of a run through on factors that I think to me are important that we all sort of baseline and we all understand equally. But also then we look at and we sort of narrow it down to what are the sort of key, you know, focuses and opportunities that I need to focus on. Um, you know, there's a, one of my favourite quotes is the, the art of strategy is deciding what not to do rather than see what to do. And I think in a role like this, you could unfortunately get spread really thin trying to do everything. Now, one of the key responsibilities of, of this body and of this role is to run the Australian International Movie Convention, which I'm looking forward to hosting next year. Um, and that brings together all of sort of the exhibitors across Australia, New Zealand, and obviously parts of Asia. And, and we do get some representation from the US as well. Um, but I'm looking at things like, you know, what were admissions per capita? What's happening with screen growth? What's happening with average ticket price? An interesting factor which came up recently you know, there is a perception on ticket price that um, Australia is, you know, a little bit expensive. But when you look at it, it's, it's basically 70% of one hour's work buys you a cinema ticket. Now, I was talking to the, the Comscore guys, um, and they'd done a lot of work on sort of benchmarking factors like this. And in some countries, you've got to work four or five hours to afford a ticket to the cinema, even though the cinema ticket's cheaper than Australian tickets. So I think factors like that, it's really important. We look at what were admissions per capita, what's happening now, how quickly are we rebounding? You know, this year already, Australian box office is higher than 2021 and we're you know, obviously only just hit August. So we've sort of got four or five months to go. Um, so what are those sort of factors? You know, what's happening with piracy? You know, what, 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 what's the effect on, you know, the varying window, which we've seen sort of a lot of experimentation. And I'm narrowing it down into these are kind of my three or four like focuses that I'm going to be intimately focused on. And then the other factors that I'll also do will be sort of important, but sort of when I get time, as opposed to sort of spreading myself across too many factors. Yeah. And, and as you mentioned, you've um, only relatively recently relocated to Australia and, and the role itself is new. Um, what, what has jumped out about the state of the industry and cinema going in Australia to you already, um, maybe in comparison to, to what you'd experienced in the Middle East? Sure. So I think one thing that's not really widely known globally is that um, cinema going globally ultimately was sort of redefined by Australian exhibitors. You know, if you remember back to the 90s, you know, Village Roadshow and Greater Union or now Event, you know, expanded globally and really like that first of all they invented gold clubs you know they created that concept and then they expanded it sort of globally um, and i think now you look at the amount of um, companies in the, inter, in the international scene that have a v in their name because of the village sort of joint venture um, i think you know we're, we're very focused here on premium we're very focused on experience there's been a lot of investment by you know event hoyts village um, reading on sort of a better experience, a premium experience, great food and beverage, great foyer experience. You know, obviously the in-centre experience is always not negotiable. Seat sound and, and vision needs to be impeccable. There's been a big investment in loyalty. Um, so I think um, I'm seeing a lot of sort of comparables to what I'm used to from the Middle East. But um, I think fortunately the experience is, is paramount, which is, you know, everything starts and ends with that experience. And we have a lot of competition um, for you know discretionary spend. However, 
that's sort of critical that we, we remain focused on experience. Yeah. And, you know, going back to your role in the Middle East, as well as exhibition, ultimately you had oversight on production and, and distribution for the company as well. When you look at it across that sort of ecosystem, what do you think could be done to boost domestic um, uh, domestic production and box office from Aussie films in, and New Zealand films in the local in the local market? Sure. So I'm, I'm actually I'm I'm only just learning Australian production again, and I'm spending a lot of time. I'm, I'm meeting Screen Screen Australia, Screen Queensland, the Producers Guild to really get a feel for for what what is and isn't working. Um, you know. At the moment, domestic sort of box office is about 5% of total box office, which is not high enough. You see markets like Turkey and that where it's 40 plus percent. Um, and I know there's a lot of very intelligent, talented people that are really focused on how do we make better Australian films. You know, there's a, there's a film forum that focuses on bringing exhibitors and distributors and filmmakers together to talk about ideas to sort of expand Australian sort of films and their sort of uh, box office. Um, so at the moment, it's probably the area that I've got the most learning and development to do. Um, but, but I know, like I saw an Australian film recently, Last Cab to Darwin, which I thought was incredible. You know, obviously the numbers from Elvis. Elvis is now the number two Australian film of all time. Um, the Australian government is very focused on incentivising, you know, big productions to come to Australia. I think there's a, there's a, fu a fund of, you know, four or five hundred million Aussie dollars focused on bringing sort of big productions to Australia because obviously the ancillary benefits that run with that. So I think it's really interesting that, you know, we have amazing filmmakers, we have amazing you know, talent, scriptwriters, and there's this uh, incredible ambition to sort of expand the Australian market. So I'm looking forward to, in my role, it's one of the areas where I feel that it's really important that NACO supports Australian filmmakers because we should, I'd love to see 10, 15, 20% of our box office coming from local films. Yeah, that'd be terrific. So we've talked about, you know, where you are today and, and where you're taking your, your role forward. I'd love to tap into some of your experience um, from your time in the Middle East. And you had that storied Middle Eastern career over, you know, 15 or so years. How did a bloke from Queensland, first of all, find himself in Dubai in the earlier days of, of the, the industry there? Yeah, sure. Thanks. Look, it's, it's funny. And again, I mentioned about, you know, village and events, you know, and their global expansion. So, um, Greater Union at the time, now events, had a joint venture in the Middle East with Majid Alpha Tame, the, the company I ended up working for. So um, Greater Union sent me over when we had sort of four locations to run this, you know, um, joint venture based out of Dubai and the United Arab Emirates. Um, that was 2007. Um, they later sold the business to Majid Alpha Tame, so it became a, a local, you know, privately owned company. And Majid Alpha Tame is a huge, you know, integrated shopping centre developer based in the Middle East who also has hypermarkets, fashion, credit cards at one point, shopping malls, ski slopes, you know, all these myriad of businesses that are all complementary to a shopping mall, the shopping mall ecosystem, and again, privately owned. Um, so over the, you know, from the, you know, 14, 15 years, we started expanding, you know, initially into Beirut, Oman, Egypt, um, you know, Bahrain, you know, we, we've managed some sort of joint ventures, some acquisitions. And then obviously with Saudi Arabia opening up in 2018, we actually moved really quickly with the support of the Saudi Arabian government when we actually built a four-screen cinema in Riyadh before cinemas were allowed to operate in the country, in the kingdom. So what we did, we spoke to the government and we said, look, we, we want to help this transition. We understand cinemas may be permissible in future. Let us build a four-screen cinema so you can see 
how cinemas operate. You can censor films and you can, we obviously wouldn't run it without your blessing, but, but let us build this. So we built that cinema in you know late 2017, early 2018. And then about two weeks before we finished construction, um, the law changed to our cinemas in Saudi Arabia. So, and then there was this enormous race for space across Saudi and we were building, you know, hundred screens per year. Um, in again, a country 33 million, 50% greater population than Australia with, you know, 2000 screens in Australia shows the opportunity that's that the kingdom's bringing. That's amazing. So how would you describe Fox for those who aren't as familiar with the brand in terms of, you know, what, what's its proposition? How did you go about building that over the, the time you were over there, that 15 year period? Sure. So we were sort of fortunate when, when I started again, we had four locations in one country. Um, and it was at a time when, you know, globally cinema expansion was sort of um, on hyperdrive. Um, I was very fortunate when I arrived, there was already a strong team in place and we supplemented that team with uh, a few new recruits and resources. But then we had the same effective leadership team for, for about 14 years when it was the same gentleman who headed up distribution and content, the same sort of marketing and innovation head. And between us, we looked at everything that was happening globally in cinema and all the great stuff that, you know, Cineplex does, that event, that Hoyts, that all the different, you know, village, that, you know, anything that was happening globally, you know, Asia's obviously, particularly Korea, there's some incredible things happening there, every man cinema in the UK. So, so we kind of looked at, you know, what's best practice um, in the industry. You know, we were fortunate, obviously, we partnered with Vista early on. Um, you know, we partnered with Movio uh, very early on. Um, and we just looked at what, what's best practice globally. What should we be thinking about? Um, we had a very, very close relationship with our customer. And even to this day, we get daily or week, they get daily um, NPS feedback from the customers, telling them what they like, what they don't like. And then we grew, we built great cinemas. You know, the, the market over there is it's incredibly hot. There's a more focused culture. You know, alcohol is not as important. The family stays together and, and goes to shopping malls to get away from the heat. So cinema is an incredible sort of drawer of crowds and and there's a massive investment in the experience of cinema, in the food. You know, we we partnered with Michelin-starred chefs to serve our food. We built these enormous sort of foyers. You know, IMAX was a very important partner for us, you know, 40X. So we had great experience, great cinemas in an environment where people actually go to the cinema rather than the movie, which is an important differentiator to hear. It's... On a Thursday night, people come to the cinema, they see what's on and they decide which of the films I'll watch rather than will I go to the cinema. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned um, the, the mall culture over there. And of course, Fox was part of that that conglomerate that included malls. Um, you know, in many parts of the world, including this part, multiplexes are predominantly within shopping malls. But we're seeing that whole retail um, philosophy, the way people are shopping is changing and that's going to have an impact on the malls. How do you see that relationship between cinemas and traditional retail and malls going forward? So I think it's interesting. I, I think it's certainly evolving. You know, what we're seeing from, you know, the US and, and UK particularly, there's a, there's a lot more mall vacancies. Developers, you know, are desperate for food and entertainment to anchor their malls moving forward. So we're seeing a lot of integrated cinema and leisure offerings coming to malls, which I think is a really important trend that everyone needs to remain focused on. We started building sort of leisure and cinema together with a you know, common foyer, which was incredibly successful for, for Vox in, in Saudi Arabia. But, but I think that trend, you know, is ultimately heading in this direction. I think you do see some standalone cinemas that trade incredibly well. Like if you look at the IMAX in Melbourne, it's several, you know, you know, 10, 20 percent 
you know, above the rest of the market in regards to the rebound because everyone is now so focused on the experience of, of anything they do. And I'm a, I'm a massive believer in, in the experience, as I said earlier, but also I think even in times like now where it's economically a bit tougher, um, I think people really will pay for the experience as long as it meets their expectations. So the example I sort of always use is if you have a favourite Japanese restaurant, if, if you can only afford to go once a month or twice a year, you will go once a month or twice a year. You won't go to a substandard Japanese restaurant three times a week. You, you'll wait until you can afford to go to the experience that is sort of in line with your sort of expectations. And I think the same thing's happening with cinema. So we're going to see... We're going to see cinemas in malls redeveloped. We're going to see some screens added. We're going to see some redeveloped. Um, we're going to see um, standalone cinemas in entertainment precincts. I think there's going to be a lot of innovation coming uh, in the market. And I think, again, those with the better experience, you, if you look at in the UK, someone like Everyman Cinemas, where they've gone into old pubs, old, you know, restaurants and whatever else and turned them into boutique you know, three, four, five screen cinemas that are doing incredibly well. Their occupancy numbers are through the roof with a really healthy food spend. On the back of everything about the experience is exceptional and something I've, I've spoken a lot about in the last few years and, and I'm, I'm going to speak a lot about sort of with, with the NACO members is the importance of everything you do being equivalent, if not better, to the best peer. And when I say that, you know, if you look at, you know, you have to have the best ticketing system. You, when you look at F and B, you, you need to compare yourself to the best restaurant, not not to the strongest cinema competitor. If you look at e-commerce, you know, we need to compare ourselves to Amazon or to you know a, a company that's a, an expert Apple, for instance, who's an expert in e-commerce. I think, unfortunately, in the past, some exhibitors compared themselves to their other cinema competition, and that didn't really evolve expectations and. All of our cinema guests, you know, interact with all those. If, if they're used to drinking incredible, you know, espresso coffee, they're not going to come to us and drink instant coffee. You know, they want, if you're going to sell coffee, it has to be great coffee. And I think that's a really important consideration moving forward. I couldn't agree more. I think, um, you know, you, you have to drop from the sentences, the words for a cinema. That's a pretty good burger for a cinema. You get rid of that, it's a pretty good burger. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. I, there's, there's someone I actually follow at the moment who regularly posts... Um, F and B, you know, as an example of the F and B they're serving, and it doesn't look amazing. And they're like, "This is better than what we used to serve." And it's like, eh, "But it's is it is it great or is it better than you used to serve?" And I hundred percent agree with you. I think in everything, like loyalty is a, a great example. You know, loyalty programs now are very sophisticated. You know, yes, you can still survive with a stamp card and you know five stamps, and you get a free cup of coffee or whatever it is, but. Um, I think there's so many world-class sort of partners that, and yes, it's expensive and yes, it's complicated and yes, you need to sort of spend some time thinking about it, but we can't be lazy and sit back and think that we can accept that people will accept substandard sort of offerings in, in entertainment. And I think one of the final things that we as an industry need to combat is, is queuing. You know, we have a lot of queue and, you know, I think there's been a lot of advances in, you know, QR code ordering in the VIP screens, you know, self-serve and whatever else. But I, I still see a lot of cinemas internationally where there's long queues of people. And aside from the airport, we don't really queue for much anymore. And I think it's it's something that needs to sort of be um, addressed quickly. Yeah, and it's almost um, in some 
legacy theater designs almost adding insult to injuries um you know vacant points of sale where there aren't staff um it's it's almost shining a light on the fact that the lines could be more streamlined but for whatever reason it's not being done at the moment i think technology is the way to solve it though rather than more humans yeah i i totally agree and, and we have a massive issue with with sort of labor costs globally and retention and you know i, I think <clears throat> i read something recently i think it was in australia i think it's I think the current statistic from the retail association is there's 40,000 vacant retail positions today. Um, in where I live on the Gold Coast of Australia, most most um, you know stores you, you visit, restaurants, whatever else, they have a sign in the window saying desperately need staff. You know, it, it, it is a big issue, and I, I think I agree with you. I think you, you you can't replace service, but you can be more efficient with what you do and more convenient and and I think that's a really important consideration that's going to drive attendance in the years ahead. Yeah, I think if you can use technology for transactions, but people for experience, then there's a, a concierge sort of thing rather than a ticket seller, then then I think yeah, you start yeah, well, to, and, to get the best of both worlds. Now as well, you know, the, the one of the local sort of um, technologies here that's focused on, um, you know, QR code ordering. Um, and, and, and again, where I live, it's everywhere now. You can't get away from it but it's it's really seamless and easy once you've once you've used it once and you get past the mental sort of block of oh, i want someone to come and serve me it is so incredibly efficient in that it even prompts you um and i think the statistic they have here it's i think it's 28 or 32 percent uplift in sales because you can scroll and you can browse at your own leisure and i was talking to one um one gentleman recently who runs a big f&b business uh, locally and he's, he was saying the risk that he has with it is people order too much and the kitchen can't keep up. And he said, I've got this amazing problem, but I'm trying to figure out how to solve it, you know, because normally I can sort of manage the queues by my staff can tell them it's going to be 20 minutes or 30 minutes. But if I, if I have a full restaurant and everyone orders the same thing at the same time, how do I prepare that quickly enough? But again, what an amazing problem to have. Absolutely. Maybe just display the calories as they keep adding other items. Yeah. <laughs> hey, look, we've talked a lot about um, uh, retail and you, you alluded to loyalty. What I was interested in is, especially as you elevated out of cinemas to the whole leisure and entertainment role in the Middle East and then integrated with the broader um, group into, into retail and malls, to what extent did you start to think of a single view of a guest and, and how did you manage that sort of data and CRM implication? Yeah, Magic Alpha Team made a, a sizable investment in, in loyalty really early on and developed their own sort of loyalty program. And it was critical for us that we had a view of the customer across all different platforms. And even to the point with, you know, our, which was everything was obviously linked to NPS and our ability to understand, you know, how a customer rated, you know, each experience. but. We had the ability to obviously connect with customers, talk to customers, even got to the point whereby as a customer, if, if a customer was unsatisfied, they had the ability to basically say, I'm not happy, I'd like someone to contact me now. And that would then link to the manager to be able to then sort of speak and sort of resolve the issue be, before it kind of festered into something bigger than it needed to be. Um, but, but I think it's critical. Um, you know, I, I spoke a, a month ago or so, I, I'd been traveling quite a bit through um, the Middle East um, and despite everyone talking about the customer and, and everyone loves to talk about data and I have all this data that they don't know what to do with or how to use it or whatever else, um, I think you've really got to narrow it down to what are the important elements and, and, and 
how can this benefit the customer rather than obviously the business, first of all. But I commented on a, a panel that I was on that, you know, having traveled through the Middle East over a two or three week period, there was only two companies that contacted me for an opinion or, you know, even though, you know, when you think about, you know, Uber, hotels, restaurant bookings, all the different ways now we transact where potentially those businesses could, um, you know, have, a, have some kind of communication with me. No one contacted me, no one followed up, which, which I thought was really quite surprising because the Middle East is quite innovative. Now, I think um, a lot of people spruik um, the benefits of data and whatever else, and there is enormous benefit to knowing your customer, being able to talk to your customer, getting feedback from your customer. But I think sometimes people actually think too big and they try to make it so big and so sophisticated and so predictive that they miss the obvious opportunities of how was the experience, how can we enhance it, those, those common things, you know, what are the trends, those, those basic sort of enhancements that I think should be done. Like, yes, it'd be nice to have that super sophisticated system ultimately, but initially talking to your customer regularly, you know, we used to, when we were building a cinema, we would contact people in that area and say, we're building a cinema. This is what we're thinking. Um, these are the types of cinemas. This is the price point. Would you rather our first class experience at this price point or our business class at this price point? And would you rather, whenever we'd have a new menu to launch in one of our VIP experiences, we'd bring in our best customers, you know, a hundred of them, they'd sample it. In one case, we actually, we had to delay the launch of the menu because our customers said, we don't like it. It's, it's not what we're looking for. And our F&B team was like, this is amazing. This is, this is everything we want. And the customers came back and said, yes, it's amazing, but we don't want to eat that kind of food in cinema. So we could have, you know, without that insight, we could have launched this menu and alienated and potentially lost a lot of customers. And so simple things that I, I feel are the most important uses of data. I, again, the sophistication is really nice, but I think you need to get the basics right first. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's incredibly uh, accurate and, and probably a good place to leave it on that that particular message. Um, I think, you know, one of the, the best things about having you in this industry are those international perspectives and yet knowing this part of the world from having it literally in your DNA. So I'm really excited to see what you bring to the new role and, and to keeping in contact. So thanks for coming on the podcast and, and all the best with that um, first board meeting next week. My pleasure. Take care, mate. Thanks for your time. Good stuff, Matt. Great job. Looking forward to next week. We've got an interview with Valmir Fernandez, president of Cinemark International, uh, and we'll be looking at the grocers specifically. Or I'm interested to see the results for Bodies, 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 a film that went out on limited release this past weekend, six locations for a screen average of about thirty-eight thousand dollars. I think it's going wider to about twelve hundred locations next week. So I'll be keen to see the the box office grocers and the audience that turns out for that next week but until then have a great week matt ryan good to see you lads movio and numero are two of the businesses within the vista group the world leading provider of technology solutions to the global film industry for more moviegoer insights be sure to visit movio.co and follow us on twitter and linkedin the behind the screens podcast is produced by grace furness and edited by patrick hannah